Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala, and folks, you know what it's all about. I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that's just how it is. There wouldn't be a podcast if it was any different. Uh, with me, as always, is someone who, you know, she doesn't care about the Rock Hall, but if you go back into the history books, you will see that she technically started this podcast. Uh, it is <laughs> it is Kristen Suttered. Hi, Kristen. Hello. Hi, Joe. I, you know... I don't care about the rock hall, but I'm, I care about today's subject. So I guess that's like, you know, we're halfway there. Yeah. We can meet in the middle with the yeah general topic. And then the subject of each week hit or miss this week is a hit for you. Of course we are in the third week oh of our bad pun name month, which is doc guest. We are talking about the documentaries that are uh, devoted to many of the 2021 Rock Hall class of inductees. We've talked about the Black Godfather. We've talked about the Go-Go's documentary. This week, I have a feeling people were expecting it, but we are, of course, talking about the Tina Turner documentary, just titled Tina, that came out on HBO. And we are so excited to have one of the editors of that film, Carter Gunn. Hi, Carter. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So excited to have you with us. This is the question I ask everybody out of the gate. And the, the answer might not be a long one. And, you know, <laughs> that's okay. But what is your reference level for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Have you seen an induction ceremony on TV before? Do you notice when the nominees come out? Anything like that? I, I really don't care that much about it outside of, I'd say, this year. Um, mm -hmm. Just because it did run so in parallel with the film coming out. But generally speaking, I don't keep track of it, nor really use it as a barometer for what is uh, canon. 
even to a degree. Yeah. But I, don't, I don't mean, I, I'm not, there's not, that's not shots fired or anything. That's just, I'm just. That's uh, just facts, Carter. And you know, <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm very much on that wavelength. I will say that there is something to be said about what it means for the pop culture nostalgia of the moment. And I think that seems to be relevant every time one of these rolls around. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's very true. I mean, we are able to have a month called Docgust right now oh because there have been several very recent documentaries that were kind of in the zeitgeist that, you know, feels like led to the induction or there's something in it contributed to something in the air that the induction is also a part of. These things, you know, whether they are cause and effect or they are somehow connected in a different way, it feels like it's all part of the same thing. Absolutely. I, I mean, the Twitter conversation around this year seemed to be somewhat contentious, I'd say, even. I mean, I'm so deep into like the Rock Hall discourse and thinking about the Rock Hall all the time that I don't necessarily know what you're referring to when you say there was a contentious discussion. Basically, where I'm starting with this is the only my only way into looking at the Rock Hall situation was knowing that so the film came out in March on HBO of this mm-hmm. year. And roughly around the same time, the new inductees were started, the, the public vote was starting. Right. Fela Kuti was the favored, basically prior to the documentary coming out. I, I know what you're referring ah. to now. You're referring to the, the fan vote. The fan vote. Which happens online and to the uninitiated might seem like something that matters. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the fan vote, uh, I can feel this if you can believe it. it Go ahead, Kristen. Uh, now, um, the fan vote, it counts for one ballot total. Really? Yeah. So out of a th- over a thousand. Uh, out of over a thousand. So I have no idea what I'm talking about. No, no, no. You do. <laughs> you, you're, you're tapping are into something in. exactly. that the, the way they present the fan vote does make it seem like this is perhaps the whole process. And also the other thing is whoever is one or two. So that's correct. The, you know, Nigeria as like a country was like coming out hard for Fela Kuti and right. brought him to the top of the, the fan vote. And then it was kind of jockeying back and forth between him and Tina for the top spot. The other thing is like, it doesn't matter who's at number one because it's the top five that get onto this fan ballot. And then from there, it's this Our small one drop one thousandth in of the a... pond. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But prior in prior years, except for last year, right? Was was mm-hmm. Dave Matthews Band the top vote getter last year? So yeah, last year it kind of broke the doors open on this whole thing because since they started the fan vote, the top vote getter always got inducted. They're always part of the class. And if you kind of knew what was going on, you knew that was a correlation, but I think a lot of people thought it was like a cause and effect thing. But then last year, the Dave Matthews band fans really came out, got the vote out, brought him to number one, and then he did not get inducted. And so then, you know, people were left scratching their heads. I'm all caught up now. Yeah. I'm, I'm shocked. You are still on the call after me describing (laughs) all this minutia about the rock hall. Wait, so the, she didn't overtake him until after the documentary came out. And so then there was Twitter, Twitter drama. I'm catching up on this part of it. I think she went to number one immediately. Then like all those huge Nigerian Twitter accounts were boosting Fela's numbers. Then he took over number one. And then I think after the documentary, 
Tina got the number one slot again. So it was, it was exactly. back and forth a few times. It's exactly what happened. Yeah. It seemed like Fela was in the clear lead until the film came out, but you know, it felt like the BTS Nigeria. Kinda. Yeah. Yeah. The Fela army really came through uh, yeah. the Fela hive assembled and the mm-hmm. continent of Africa. Yeah. Like a, Mighty Morphin Power Ranger. Yeah, exactly. They uh, <laughs> they assembled and they brought him to number one, but it wasn't enough. It's uh, Dave Matthews. Uh, actually, how cruel to compare Fela Kuti to Dave Matthews, but, right? they're, they're, but both, it was... they're both from Africa. Technically, <laughs> technically, <laughs> technically, both from Africa. So can I ask another question now? Please, so... please. This is not a U.S.-based thing. This is an international, this is rock and roll from around the world. The rock Ish. Well, that's, Ish. that's a great question because obviously the vote is open to anyone who has an internet connection. But if you look at who has been inducted throughout the entire history of the Rock Hall, it's an American institution. They don't say that necessarily, but if you define it by who's been inducted, there's really no inductee who hasn't had a presence in America. You know, you might get Bob Marley or ABBA, but you know, they have had, they were, they had huge hits in America and they were, they have a lot of fans in America. So where is it? Cincinnati? It's in Cleveland. 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 Although as we've discussed before, the hall really exists in all of our hearts. Oh my God. <laughs> the, it is, the museum it is. might be in Cleveland, but it, there's a ton of stuff that happens. The like inductions sometimes happen in New York and a lot of the decision-making happens right. in inside of the Rolling Stone offices. And so, you know, right. But we don't have to keep talking about <laughs> the, the minor, uh, you know, finer points of how the rock hall operates and stuff. We can talk about the documentary Tina. And I would love to know how you came to the project, Carter. Sure. So TJ Martin and Dan Lindsay, the directors of the film, we had worked together before and we were generally sort of friends here in Los Angeles in the documentary community. And they had started this project with another amazing editor, Taryn Gould, and they sort of took it, I'd say for eight months or so, trying to find its way. And I think they kind of just burnt out after a little while, trying to sort of identify the voice of the film. And after they took a break, um, because we had worked together before, I came in just to try to fresh blood, look at it from a different point of view. And then we basically went nine months from there and uh, took it to the finish line. So at that point, when you became involved, I'm imagining they already shot all the interviews with Tina and then with the, you know, there's a handful of people who show up in new footage interviews like Oprah and Angela Bassett. Um, I'm so I'm assuming at that point, all that stuff is shot. That's right. Well, um, except for maybe one interview or so, I can sort of tell you how it evolved. There, There was sort of an idea, you know, with most music docs, you kind of get a cast of characters who are both musicians, maybe people that they've run into throughout their life. Someone with Tina, like Tina Turner, you'd have the opportunity to like go to Mick Jagger or go to all these famous people to have them just sort of sound up. But there was a little bit of constraint put on that with the idea that the only people that would either um, sound off in her life were either people who were close friends or people who had told her story. So Mm -hmm. that ended up becoming a little bit of the constraint and the construct of the film was trying to figure out who actually had the authority to speak if they didn't know her very, very closely. So that's when you have someone like Carl Arrington, who was the 
person who first published the People article where she came public about her abuse in her marriage with Ike. Mm-hmm. You have Kurt Loder, who wrote the book. You have Angela, who played her. And then you have Katori Hall, who wrote the play. So the idea was that this whole thing of Tina telling the story of her life came through the authors and the people who presented that story to the world at those various times with the meta acknowledgement that we are the last of that, that grouping. Right. So, right, yeah. Yeah. This is like the, the collection of collections, you know, exactly. So that idea was, was there, but it wasn't, the structure was not something that had been explored um, in that first year. Um, when they first started the film, because the tapes, the audio tapes that Kurt Loder and Carl Arrington had recorded when they, they did their initial interviews with her, when she first spoke about her abuse. And then when she told her full life story to Kurt Loder, who wrote her autobiography in the 80s, we had the full collection of those audio tapes. You know, Tina's in her 80s now. So she was much more, you know, illustrative and emotional and theatrical when she told that story when she was 45 at the peak of her career. Right. Not only that, when they told those tapes, Kurt went with her on her world tour and they would basically just like drink a bottle of wine after her show in Prague or something like that Mm -hmm. and discuss events of her life. So they always had so much life to them. So that first year really was sort of diving into the tapes and it was much more of like a poetic pass on trying to sort of spin the sort of all of the the poetry of, of her archive and these tapes, but it didn't really lock into the structure of where it ended up. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think there was probably the initial feeling of not wanting to do a cradle to the grave doc about Mm -hmm. a big famous person where everyone kind of knows her story and trying to push away from that. And I think it took us a little bit of time to sort of realize that it was an okay thing to do. And it was the most effective thing to do if we told it the right way. And I still think it sort of sets itself apart than most due to the fact that she's still alive and you get the opportunity for kind of a five act structure more than a four act structure, something where usually a rock doc ends in the dumps and this one doesn't. Yeah, it ends in her castle in Switzerland. <laughs> like. Right, yeah, in, in one of the nicest mansions I think I've ever seen. But yeah, I mean, the, the movie is very clear about the structure in that, you know, the five parts are given their own title card and it's made clear each segment what is generally the kind of theme of each part. Yeah. And again, uh, that was something that was arrived to later in the process. And I think it kind of really took understanding what the ending of the film was and what that fifth chapter was to lock it in place. Because I think once we sort of realized that Tina's story, for those who don't know it, and, you know, something I think we also had to accept was that, you know, we're of a generation who grew up with her and doing this film is for generations who didn't grow up with her story as well. Mm -hmm. Here she is in her 80s, a woman who was born in Tennessee, who literally picked cotton as a child, who became one of the most famous pop stars in the world. And she's still suffering and dealing with um, cycles of trauma that happened from her childhood to Mm -hmm. now. And realizing that in her old age, she actually was exploring and dealing with forgiveness um, and finally letting some of that go. And we finally framed that last chapter of the film as sort of a love chapter 
in both sort of exploring her second marriage, the love of herself, and sort of letting go of her stage presence. And I think once we realized that that was sort of how this thing was ending, it really gave us the opportunity to frame what the the big chapters were throughout her whole entire life. I, you know, I keep thinking, and I thought this when I was watching the film, but her story has been told many times through many different ways, whether it's the book, the interview, Mm -hmm. the movie. Do you know, and I know you came later in the process, but like, how does another version of the story, which is this documentary, how does it get to be told, especially with someone like Tina, who is so, we, we find out in the documentary that she's so guarded about her story, having told it so many times mm-hmm. and having had to relive the ugliness of it. You know, there are times when she wanted to put her story to bed and in doing so just made it more of almost a media frenzy. I'm curious if you know just kind of the genesis of the project, if you have any insights on, on those things. I think it's kind of an interesting thing, to be honest, because I think it kind of started a little less sincere than it ended up. And by that, I kind of mean that Dan and TJ were at Cannes, or the production company was at Cannes, the producers were there. And basically, a part of the marketplace was that the idea of pitching Tina's rights as a story for a documentary were being pitched to Lightbox. Dan and TJ had worked with Lightbox before on LA92, which is an amazing film, uh, if you haven't seen it. And they weren't fully that interested in doing. Only for the reasons that I think that you just said, it's been told a million times. Mm -hmm. Is it stuff she really wants to talk about? What can they bring to it? Particularly like as two men. And also it's just like, it's a big rock star. Like how is this, what's the depth to it? Mm -hmm. They ended up doing it after a little bit of talks. For one, Erwin, her husband right now, was pushing this to happen in tandem with her theater production that's going on. So on uh, Broadway and in London, there is a Tina Turner play. And this was sort of her swan song going out. And he thought it would be a good idea that if she could do one sort of final year of her press, she basically would never have to do it again. And if she found the right storytellers to sort of cement that, everyone would kind of understand. So that was sort of a part of the reasoning behind that. As far as guardedness, it was up for sure. There was only... Uh, one thing, filmmakers, don't do this, um, but this was, this, was, this was how the schedule was set up. Tina was the first interview that they were scheduled mm. to do. Oh, uh, yeah, don't, don't do that Mm-mm. in the future. You get everybody yeah. else and then you, you, then you land the big fish. And then you know what you want to talk about too, based on right. everything that you've learned from right. other you, people. You can let like... her respond. You can, yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. There was um, only the ability, I think, to um, do another audio interview a little bit later um, where Dan was able to sort of go with her and just do some audio pickups. And there's some quieter stuff towards the end of the film that definitely has a different cadence, which is this more intimate thing that they did just for audio that's used as uh, VO. Yeah. So that was sort of how that process started. Now, she was absolutely guarded and at certain points, not willing to go too deep. And I think a part of the reason the film took so long was kind of doing the dance of where 80-year-old Tina is, or as we refer to her, Tina Tina, um, <laughs> versus tape Tina, and trying to find the line of who tells the story when. Do we hear it through tapes? Do we hear it through other people sort of interpreting those events? And when do we come up for air and let present-day Tina actually speak to that? Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of a dance. I think ultimately she saw the film and 
I found it cathartic. That's great. We were a little nervous about it, particularly it would be the first time she had heard some of the audio tapes where she first told Kurt Loder and Carl Arrington, like about very detailed, explicit examples of rape and abuse. And we were a little nervous for her to hear that, but she was able to take it in context and really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think that was a, a big question at the end of the film is, you know, because you really do get the sense that she is very done talking about this. You see her get just the amount of times, yeah, that she's been re-traumatized by the story and kind of how the story has become bigger than her and also inextricably linked to her in all the ways that we just talked about. And like, I, yeah, I was very curious about how she would feel about the film once it, and it, it, it puts it in a context though, that her husband was like, let's take one more swing at this and like put a bow on it. Let's say literally this is it. It's over. We have said literally everything that needs to be said. It's like not often, like you were saying that a documentary has like a an uplifting hat. Although I, I guess I've seen a few lately. Now that we're getting a lot of vanity docs for people <laughs> who are still alive in the music industry, it's like, it's docist, baby. And it is we're docist. talking about them all. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, and, and if you are still alive and it's an authorized documentary, you have the ability to create and shape the narrative that you want to be told, you know? Sure. And I mean, uh, you brought up an interesting term. And I think this was sort of, a reason that there was probably trepidation in doing the project in the first place, which was Vanity Doc, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which was, I think, something that none of us really wanted to do. And, you know, it's part and parcel. It's it's difficult to not do something like that, particularly with such an up, uh, like a literally inspired, you know, so inspired. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not, it's like some people, their story is, and their talent and their career and their life is incredible. And I guess I don't mean it in a diminishing way. Like, I don't think this was the Clive Davis documentary, but I think that it is like a celebration. But when the person is alive, you know, you, and if it is the authorized thing, you know, they get to decide kind of how far it goes and where it goes. Yes. And to clarify, she didn't have that ability, but we obviously didn't want to leave her feeling as though it didn't do her service or justice. I think we were perfectly fine if had we included something um, that maybe she wasn't happy with, as long as the film ultimately did her story justice. I, you know, and I think there's always things that you kind of wish that you could put in or could have explored a little bit more. And I'm not sure if they they would have been things that she would have been totally interested in talking about, but definitely things that if this were a longer film, I think would have been quite interesting as well. Some puffy, some not. I mean, you know, there was other things, if we're talking about cycles of violence, I mean, there's a very interesting element to this, which is that we really struggled with not wanting Ike to come across just like a villain. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to do in a movie of this length. He himself suffered from abuse as a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, He saw his father beaten by a white man in a racial attack. You know, he was the victim of sexual abuse. But basically, it was one more element of Mm -hmm. of this thing to show that everybody was sort of a victim in their own way. And that you know, nobody is, is just bad. Like it was all- It doesn't just happen that way that someone's, yeah. Right. Like cycles of violence come from somewhere and they perpetuate endlessly. Absolutely. One other theme I think we always sort of talked about wanting to explore was the idea of Tina growing up a young Black girl in, in Tennessee. But at that time, the 
the woman who she considered to be her idol was Jackie Kennedy. And um, just the idea that there's these very sort of well-done white women on TV, Doris Day, uh, Jackie O, you know, were the epitome of beauty and what it, the sort of regal idea of what women should be. And mm -hmm. Tina very much held herself to that. There's a certain professionality that she took with her that I think you could really draw from the way that, at least in her older age, obviously she went through a full sexual uh, rebellion, if you will. Yes. But anyway, point being is like, these were some themes it would have been really interesting to touch on in maybe a longer film, something else that I think could have been interesting for people. Yeah, just to contextualize a, a few of those things, like the Ike stuff and also kind of the cultural icons that she was growing up with as her touchstones and you know what that meant and like what the impact of that was on her in her career and then later in her life yeah we always ask like is there anything you wish you could have included or like were there moments in the footage or tape that you were like oh my gosh this is just we wish yeah or particularly you know watchable or interesting uh or fun but doesn't fit you know the narrative that the documentary needs to tell or doesn't really belong if you are trying to efficiently tell this the story yeah i mean so i i guess i led with that one uh the other ones you know we tried to keep the music performances to be illustrative to specific events in her life. Um, needless to say, going through all this archive, there's plenty of performances that you wish you could have added to, mm -hmm. um, including some that we just hadn't seen before. Like just incredible archive. I would also add that this might sound soft, but it's actually, it's so good. Right after she retired at the age of 70, and she was still in high heels on catwalks and stuff. Right. Um, and I mean, just as a performance, she, apparently she never missed a show her whole life. And this is, this is, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I'll buy it. <laughs> like, yeah, I, buy, I, buy it I want to believe, I want yeah. to believe I'm in. Was like consummate professional. So anyway, all I was really getting at was the fact that she basically had a, a series of severe illnesses right after she, she um, retired. Um, she had kidney failure. Um, she had a cancer scare. And I think a couple mini strokes, all um, sequential within a couple of years. And her husband, Erwin, gave her his kidney. Uh, wow. Oh my yeah. gosh, you want to put that in. Come I on. I know. It's so sweet. Because we already like him, though. On. We already like him. We do. We really like yeah. We like him. He, he shows up the at the end yeah. of the movie as such a breath of fresh air. Like you really want Tina to have a win romantically. And when he, yeah, he comes in, he, he is such a, and that detail really just helps to build the, the character of Irwin in the story. Yeah. It was a really beautiful little scene. I mean, and you're, you're there for it. As, as saccharine as it may sort of sound oh, in yeah. some ways, like you're so there for it. I'm like, tell um, me more about all the, all the things, all, every nice thing he's ever done for her. I want, uh, I just want to see her enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, was that, did that not make it? Cause it was, it would have been too much. Like it there is a timing <laughs> thing, you know, yeah. I, it, it's very difficult to sort of say everything is just sort of, it's a such collective momentum when yeah. you're sort of trying to pace a movie that, it would be perfect, but it just hung up a little too much before you sort of landed the plane. It pulled something out and you just couldn't put your finger on it right. in terms of like the where you wanted to land emotionally by the end of the film. Yeah. And if it was good or not, it was still just one of those things where it was like a, a, a timing thing mm -hmm. uh, for pace. 
Yeah, because yeah, you're kind. Of, you're right. Yeah, it's like the we're wrapping it up, and it's like a bit of a divergence to go into health problems that happened 15 years ago, and it's like maybe, another yeah. thing about um Irwin, who we already like. Yeah, I could see that, but I'm glad I know it. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and now exactly. our listeners do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I w- I w- at any point, I know you. You talk about things that could have been in it. There's a lot of great archival footage. I know it's it's a hot move right now to make documentary series uh, as opposed to to films, and you know that sometimes some of them are some of them uh, should not should be some movies. of them are, should not be uh, series, or some you know, of them could just be two part docs. Just a maybe two parts doesn't need to be six. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm just curious about that two part program. thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if we if we saw it as anything else, it would have been I think just uh, a two part. Uh, which made sense just even in terms of trying to break up the earlier years um, and basically her rise to fame, which would be eighties and on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what it, it really came down to what the original buy was a lot of those sorts of things, particularly today, when it comes to a lot of the doc series, the way Netflix and uh, others, well, let's just say said streamers, uh, they can still hire me. Uh, the, the, uh, the way they work, you know, is you get more money for every episode you do. Like there's a budget drawn for each of those episodes. So you get, the, you get these series that are kind of fat because they can pull money out of them. Also, apparently there was some sort of algorithm read that was incorrect on like engagement and how these longer ones were engaged, but I guess people weren't actually finishing them. Um, so there was like a mis, a misnomer. So anyway, I think it kind of led everybody astray a little bit. And that's why we were getting these sort of incredibly padded, you know, long series for a while. Yeah. Interesting. I, mean, I had no I, idea. I think a two hour Tina doc, that seems. It's, it's tempting to do. I bet it was tempting to do a lot longer just because I think there is, there's plenty, you know, it's, it's a long and eventful life. And even if you're just adding more footage of her performing, like that mm-hmm. is an extremely watchable way to sp- spend your time. And you yeah, know. absolutely. Just, yeah. I mean, she's... the second episode could have just been the private dancer tour live. <laughs> just to just show that. About, yeah. <laughs> Put a little bumper at the top and the end. Just a bouncing ball at the bottom. Yeah. For everybody to sing <laughs> there you go. Exactly. There you yeah. go. Yeah, there's a few things like that. I mean, um, particularly someone like Tina Turner, who she was famous basically since she was a teenager. I mean, that is a, I, I, to your point, there's not a lot of people who are archived uh, for that long. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. She's 80 years old. So or 81 by now, 82. So, you know, do the math on that, you know, 60 some years of pictures and film. Yeah, for sure. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take a quick break right now, but when we come back, uh, we'll keep talking about the Tina documentary. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice little break. We hope over your break, Kristen. Uh, oh, that um, that you got excited about a secret project. Yeah, there you go. Well, let's. Uh, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to just kind of go through the big moments of the Tina documentary. And obviously, Carter, we encourage you to just chime in with uh, any insights, background, whatever you'd like. But we know we, we've talked a lot about the Carl Arrington People Magazine interview which really frames a lot of like the first half, maybe even more of, of the movie. 
And it, it was interesting that I, I, I didn't realize, you know, we know so much about the Tina story and the book and the movie and now the musical, but this, I didn't realize how that the first domino really to fall in her telling her story is this People Magazine interview. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to give a little context to that, I think there's a period of Tina's life that most people aren't quite aware of. And we kind of always referred to it, the card on the wall for it was always called the wilderness. And essentially after Tina and Ike Turner got a divorce, Tina was completely broke. She was in debt. She had children. And she kind of was just like on the hustle again. Mm -hmm. After that, she basically was going through this period of time where as an act, she was always just associated as Ike and Tina and was trying to separate and basically become her own self, her own persona. And a part of that was basically trying to reframe what Ike and Tina, um, what they were. And that, it, as she puts it, we weren't such a love team. Uh, mm -hmm. And at that period of time, People Magazine, you know, was on every grocery store stand and they sold millions of copies. And it was one of those natural subscriptions that everyone got like a TV guide kind of thing or Newsweek or something like this. So that basically was the first time she actually sat down and opened up about abuse. And at that period of time as well, women weren't really known to, to open up about domestic abuse. Like domestic abuse wasn't, there was no sort of exclamation point put on that in the way that it is today, or there was no sort of common language to really talk about it in the same way. And it, it was kind of a, a period of time too, where it was thought to not happen to rich, successful people to yeah. famous people. If it happened, it was, you know, shameful and, you know, but it certainly wasn't a thing that like rich, famous, you know, thought to be rich. Clearly she was ha um, having financial hardship, but like that famous people did not ever talk about. You would use some coded language about it if you were even going to talk about it. So like to be so frank, about something that had been so put in the shadows up until that point, I think it helped a lot of people. Absolutely. And I, mean, I, think, I think you said two things that are really interesting. I mean, it was shameful. And then from a business perspective, you know, it was sort of thought to hurt your brand, right? I mm -hmm. mean, there, there's a whole idea of, your, of the fact that you're selling yourself and mm -hmm. why would you want to associate any sort of negativity around that, both as yourself being a victim and necessarily blaming calling out your husband as an abuser, which also mm -hmm. at that time and still today in certain circles is not a thing you're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. So and needless to say, I think as we'll move on, you know, I think a part of the real interesting thing with that development is the fact that it did the exact opposite, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe her story is so intertangled with who she is. So we we get our first part, we get part one of the five parts, which is Ike and Tina, and we, we start with how she met Ike, how she tricked her way basically on the stage through perseverance to sing with his group and wowed them all, starts the Ike and Tina review. And I, I did think it was interesting, the nugget about, you know, Rocket 88, the song that Ike was the mastermind behind some mm -hmm. consider to be the first rock and roll song. And his name is nowhere on it. It's credited to Jackie Brenson and the Delta cats. And this was a recurring theme 
with Ike that he wouldn't get credit and he would get left by the people he was working with. And then that guilt is put on Tina, Mm -hmm. who then promises him and is a woman of her word that she would not leave him like that. And that promise is something she has to carry, something she does carry with her throughout her entire time her tumultuous time with Ike. She not only is like a, a, a woman of honor, but it's that plus the fact that she she loved him and felt bad for him in a lot of ways. And I, all those things definitely sort of, um, she didn't know how to undo that for a certain period of time, that early years of her relationship. To go back to Ike and him sort of getting ripped off and, and bringing up a couple other things that would have been great to include in the film. I, I think a lot of people don't understand Ike Turner's place in rock music, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of incredible. So he was a talent scout for one for Sun Records. He found Howlin' Wolf. That you know who Howlin' Wolf is because of Ike Turner, right? Wow. Um, his relationship to BB King uh, was so close. His mother babysat BB King. Jesus. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's, uh, that's wild. They were, they were childhood friends. Yeah, so he was always in that community. If you play, is it Tutti Fruity? It's good golly, Miss Molly. Back to back with Rocket 88. Basically, the main piano piece of the progression of that is, it was something we had in the film for a little bit, but uh, you'll sort of see that even not in public, but in in circles in that scene, it was influential in ways that people were sort of biting early Mm records. You hate to get too deep into the psyche. You don't want to make a movie that is about Tina Turner that delves deep into the psyche of her abuser. You know, like that, it's kind of like you have to decide how much airtime to give to that and stuff. But it is very interesting, like the cycle of being left of abuse of kind of not getting yours like not getting what you deserve and taking it out on someone else and putting all of that hurt and pain onto somebody else and making them the focal point and also it's such a part of a cycle of abuse to say you are the only one who never left me you're the only one who I trust who can who who stood by me and all this stuff make it a shameful decision for yourself if you were going to break that yeah mm-hmm. absolutely I mean, you know, and another thing, if you're going to expand that period of time, I mean, you're also talking about what Ike Turner was trying to do in the South in music business at that period of time, which wasn't an easy thing to do to break out of your circles or to make pop music or to get mm-hmm. hit, particularly off of Black radio, if that's also what you were trying to do. I mean, that's why the whole Chitlin Circuit thing, that's where the Ike and Turner, uh, Tina Turner review happened. But that's sort of always uh, a ceiling that he was trying to break through as well, was mainstream pop. Yeah, so so from here we see the the vision you know, and I- Ike is, you know, the, the name Tina is, you know, her, uh, Tina Turner was born on a May Bullock, but she becomes this persona. And, you know, a, a lot of it is Ike creating that and seeing Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, and taking Sheena, making it Tina, and starting this review. And she's this l- almost like liberated sexual being, mo- the movements on stage are very much in juxtaposition to something more like the Supremes or Mm -hmm. Mary Wells or the Temptations who have this sophistication to them. She's a wild child, so to speak, on stage. 
and we see kind of okay here and they're off you know that they're making music they're touring they're touring nonstop, doing a brutal amount of performance they you know claim at times four shows a night and that you know ike is the driving force behind that you know for better or and often for worse just kind of cracking cracking the whip on on everybody i mean and they were a known tight band like i mean it's a you know the the double-edged sort of that it's like prince you know how prince apparently would go uh every every time they'd go play a show and then they'd go back to the studio afterwards and make sure they got everything right. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's really wild. You know, the stories of Ike pointing to someone in the band after maybe they miss a note or miss a cue and you know that they're going to, they're not going to get paid. That, oh that means you're not getting paid that night. Brutal perfectionism. Mm. Uh, pass for me. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's good and people can get some art out of it. <laughs> Yeah, but at what cost, right? But at what cost? At, at, at what I, cost? I, for me, it's a no. Uh, but in the, in this part of the film, you get a ton of really great archival footage of, of them performing on TV or just at shows. It's there's there's concert footage where I'm like, this is really incredible that this exists. I mean, that period of time for television performances is pretty amazing. I mean, and that's not. I mean, for R and B, for soul, for folk, I feel like going on YouTube most of the time to go see like old Helen Wolf performances, TV performances and things like that when it was just those variety shows. But yeah, our archivist, Ben Piner, who is also the archivist for LA 92. I mean, like does astounding work. Uh, he drove, I think so much of where we wanted to take the story based off of a lot of the deep digging uh, he was able to do with that stuff. I mean, it just completely changed the direction of what you think you're able to do when you could let images tell more of the story mm-hmm. that yeah that's that's it's really pivotal stuff and to watch it yeah you you get more than you can ever get from just hearing about it yeah imagine someone trying to talk about that about what it's like to have watched them perform yeah or even just tina dancing yeah it's like you that is something you have to see yeah to get yeah. And a majority of the photos during that period of time were taken by one of her close friends who ended up becoming a manager for Icantina, Rhonda Graham, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year. But a lot of those candid photos that were taken with them behind, you know, in the dressing room, on the bus, mm-hmm. all at the parties, all of that stuff was, those were all Rhonda's personal photographs. Yeah. And that stuff's invaluable to, yeah. to this kind of thing. So, and we also, that we are introduced to the beginnings of the abuse with Ike and and we start to understand the way that he is is treating her but then we also get her first taste of freedom musically mm-hmm. when she does River Deep Mountain High with Phil Spector ironically uh, her first taste of freedom with is with Phil Spector Phil Spector okay. of all people <laughs> Even though it's credited to Ike and Tina, Phil Spector essentially paid Ike to just take a hike so he could, you know, as he as he is known to use the studio as an instrument and mm. have Tina's voice be the anchor of that. Also talking about a scene where I don't know if people know the history of River Deep Mountain High, but it's an absolutely gorgeous song. And if if you're coming at knowing Tina from basically any other period of time. It sounds nothing like any of it. Uh, it's a completely different use of her voice. I mean, she's she's harnessing something that she 
she doesn't really do anywhere else. I mean, even when her and I play the song later, he always double-timed everything. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, nothing, nothing has the same sort of breadth um, or feeling that that recorded one does. But it's absolutely beautiful. And speaking more about the archive, there was a photo session that was taken of the entire recording of the song. So, you know, again, trying to make room for things. We had all of the takes where Phil and her are sort of talking. He's telling people to start again. Incredible. Um, We had the contact sheets of her sort of like wiping her brow in the booth, like all of the guys tuning and getting ready. I mean, we cut, I think we originally cut a scene of that and then you want to hear the full song or Mm -hmm. most of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you eventually have to just sort of shrink these things down. But the story originally started with the first time they met Phil and it went on for 10 minutes because mm-hmm. you find this archive and you're like, well, how can we not share this with everybody? Yeah, I'm like, put out a featurette. Yeah. Yes. Eventually, eventually, you know, eventually it's a matter of, you know, distilling that down to what it meant to Tina, which was this was her moment of freedom and you can let the music sort of do the talking. Yeah, for sure. That's that, that is so enticing. Oh gosh. Well, you know, I watched this movie a few months ago with my mom and sister when they were in town visiting. And I remember that when that part, when she talks about how badly it did, like how much it bombed in the U S all of us were sitting on the couch being like, how, how is it possible? The song is so good. It's such an unbelievable, just triumph of a sound you know now we know that there's all of this (laughs) stuff that we could have learned about it and that you know but what it did mean to tina was that it was like her taste of freedom and then it didn't propel her in the way Mm -hmm. that she had hoped but you know it's funny even though ike is not on that recording he is the one because his his name is on it though he is the one who feels like he needs to defend it when it bombs and in the movie he is the one who gives the reasoning and it maybe it's an excuse but it, it sounds about That's, right which I think is it's legit yeah. yeah i think it's legit too which is that this is a pop song but because of the way the charts are segregated by genre they put it into the r&b category and if it doesn't become top 10 or top five on the r&b charts it doesn't even have a chance to cross over to the pop mm-hmm. so it was put into the wrong category to begin with and was never able to ascend the way it needed to. Ike was incredibly smart and astute businessman and knew music. And I mean, this was something I think that he dealt with the decades before. It's something that he realized and was very aware of during that moment. And it's something that Tina dealt with when she was trying to define herself later on. I mean, you can look at the awards on her shelf in her mansion and it's like best black music. You know what I mean? Like there's things like this later on um, that they dealt with as well. So one thing that isn't explored in the film here, but this was a period of time where they went to Europe and started touring some in Europe because it did really well there. People love that song. Like if you talk to a lot of British people, like English fans, I mean, River Deep is the song that they usually cite for understanding Tina. Like that's the song that their parents were playing, mm-hmm. you know, when, when uh, they were growing up. So at that period of time, that was a big change for them because they started doing European tours mm. and they played with the Stones when they were younger and stuff like that too. And that's something for the sake of the structure of the film, we don't fully go off and show every every little thing, but that happened at that period of time. Right, well, that, that idea of genre bias and mm-hmm. the UK being the place and Europe being the place where they understand Tina is something that is a pivotal moment later in in the film. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's huge. 
Yeah. So let's let's go to uh, part two, which is family, which is and I, I also I got to say, uh, every time we do a different part, usually with these parts, then we go to a place and a time like we go to Los Angeles, 1970, and we get this great footage of what appears to be Los Angeles in 1970. And I don't know if it actually is. I'm buying it. Did that archivist come through? I mean, ben is, Piner, it, is he? Uh, yeah, so that is, the archive is 100% from that time. I mean, it's, you know, it's archive that was shot for whatever reason. And, you know, we acquired it. But where it's leading to is their house during that period of time, which is yes. original. Well, that's archive footage, but it, it's a different kind of thing. So you want me to go ahead and explain what I'm talking about? Please, yeah. So yeah. You know, we get a lot of footage of the place that they lived in in Los Angeles at that time. And we get what looks like footage of it now and abandoned. Exactly. A few years ago, I'm going to forget the name of the filmmaker, but an Italian man shot a short film in their house, which was still standing and was owned and preserved in the you know abandoned fashion that it was. Wow. It was preserved a little bit more than what you see. It was shot sort of um, during a period of renovation. The weird thing is that the short film that he shot wasn't about Tina and... Ike. It was what? about the dent. It was about the dentist who bought the house from them and kept it exactly as it was. What on earth? That is insane. So TJ and Dan and Ben, um, I don't remember how this came across their path, but they realized that he this short had existed and that he still had all of his dailies from the short, which a lot of it is Steadicam shots completely archiving the entire house as Tina and Ike lived in it. And you can see matching photos between that period of time uh, then and now, and you'll see that the bed, the design, the decor is exactly the same. Even if you look at, watch What's Love Got to Do With It, um, Mm -hmm. the bedroom is is the same. It's unbelievable footage to the point where like, I needed answers and I'm so glad you're coming, <laughs> you're coming through because yeah. you're like, on what, in what world would there be footage from now, uh, the present day of the place that they lived in, in the seventies, like yeah. how, well, you know, a dentist bought it, preserved <laughs> it, and then hired an Italian filmmaker to make a film about not that. Yeah, that was the answer I was expecting. So (laughs) Um, there's another element to that. When we were editing the film, it was TJ and I working together. Mm -hmm. Um, TJ is co-director and he's an editor as well. Amazing editor. And he did a pass on a scene that I'm sure we'll get to is which when she leaves the marriage. But one element of the footage of the home was he captured the demolition of the house. So there was a for a little while there, we sort of included included it as a creative thing of her getting away from her past mm-hmm. where these guys were putting sledgehammers you I, know, through all the walls and like yeah. all this footage was ripping apart. And it was very interesting. But to this conversation, it kind of like begged more questions than it actually gave answers <laughs> to where you're like, what the, f- you know, how, what how is happening? You- how, why? Yeah, how, yeah like yeah. you have to stop the film down and, and put a card in that said mm-hmm. previously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good Christ. Well, that I, I'm so glad you shared all that because what an incredible thing to have into to have for that this part of of the film which you know not only goes through her family at this time you know she's got 
four kids, two from, you know, Ike's previous marriage, one from her previous was, I don't know if she was married or if she just had a child. She had, yeah, she had a child with one of the members of the review. Right. And then one child that came from their relationship. But then we also, you know, this family part, we go back and then we see the real roots of Tina and her childhood in, in Nutbush and her relationship with her or, you know, non-existent relationship with her parents who both were not in the picture and what that meant to her, especially given that she she very sadly just was waiting for her mom to come back for them and, and never did. Yeah, this is something that, you know, hopefully we illustrate in the film. Her relationship and the difficulty that of her sort of resolving, you know, being left with her mother, I think to a degree still had a harder impact on her than her years with Ike. Um, it's something that she really has difficulty talking about or, 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 you know, it still makes her quite emotional. It's definitely something that she never got over. And I think I think that kind of comes through from the Kurt Loder tapes mm-hmm. when she did her biography. And, but we do get we get the moment of they do get finally a big hit with Proud Mary. They make it to the top. Finally, it's 1971. They've been at this for some time, but it's a huge, huge hit. And, you know, now they're doing the talk show circuit. You've got great footage from the Dick Cabot show Mm -hmm. where Ike is very camera shy, but you also, you get this really almost sinister moment where he like looks into the camera and like you, you almost see like evil in his eyes which is, you know, the film revisits at a certain point. And, you know, you see Tina being the consummate, professional, gregarious, super likable personality on these shows. Yeah, I think this is a period of time where, you know, she sort of definitely came into her own, uh, not only as a professional, but for that very reason, you know, Ike Ike wasn't a front man. He never was going to be Mm -hmm. a front man. And he was never going to be Tina Turner. And this was finally the period of time where I think she had that opportunity and basically got that training to be a celebrity. She was a professional musician and an amazing artist, but like this is this was sort of like that period of time where the the next Voltron piece sort of came into to being, if you will. Yeah. And so they have they have this moment of they're on top, but then the struggle to have a follow-up hit takes its toll. The violence with Ike gets even worse. And she's driven to a point where she tries to kill herself. You also, at this moment, you get a interview with Ike from the year 2000, which is also very interesting to hear him be unable to make sense of what he is and what he did. He you know, he's given an opportunity to try and explain himself, I guess. And it's, it's really, it's on, it's an uncomfortable part of the movie to hear him stumble over himself. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple uncomfortable elements of that. For one, he addresses the fact that she tried to kill herself more than once casually. Um, Right. We we talk about the moment that, you know, this sort of dramatic moment where they brought her back. Um, But he sort of casually mentions it happened maybe more than once. There was a few moments of Ike that we kind of wanted to deploy carefully. I think for the same reason that we were sort of talking about before, where you don't want to take away 
from her story, but you want to provide context in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it was always sort of a difficult dance. That piece there just sort of in its raw of him sort of stumbling to try to get to the heart of something. Yeah, it, 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 it hits. Yeah, absolutely. And then the beginning of her being able to truly get her freedom from Ike starts with the introduction of Buddhism to her life and chanting and, you know, the film uses that chanting in almost like a rhythmic way to put you into that headspace of what it is like to have a mantra. It is Tina chanting, is it not? It is, yeah. So this this was an idea um, that Taryn had started to explore in one of the, in sort of identifying some of those early turns and pivot points. Yes, the first, the first editor from before you yeah, were on exactly. board. Yeah, so, um, Taryn Gould, and trying to identify the, the big changes in Tina's life, right? These moments that you kind of want to, you know, you sort of, you put up your, your big poles. Your temples, then, yeah. Your temples, and then you figure out how you get to these, these turning points. Um, and this was, she's a great sound designer and sort of had played with this. And I think that audio, that audio is either from a Terry Gross podcast like a, it's from Fresh Air. From, in interesting. Ah. From NPR, I think, yeah. I, I think that's what it is. Yeah, because it's very clear, you know? Yeah, and exactly. I was, I was yeah. like, I wonder if they, if, booth, yeah. yeah, where exactly, but yeah, it really, uh, and it is, is powerful because of that clarity. Yeah, and she, she goes, like she does it for a while on the, on the podcast. It wasn't, um, so we kind of, we, we leaned into that. Again, talking about archival, we were able to get these, contact sheets from a photographer during that period of time that, you know, there's multiple things happening in this period of Tina's life. In one part, it's sort of unfortunately classic rock tale thing where like money and drugs enters the picture and, mm -hmm. and Ike has built his sound studio at home, Bollock Studios. Um, there's amazing footage of them doing sessions in here that just aren't going anywhere. He's yeah. just like literally bags of Coke on the mixer. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we have all of these contact sheets that start to show some of Tina's transformation. And, you know, there was other little things in there where you actually got to see some of the first pieces of um, her shrine and things. Again, just being able to paint a really interesting story, um, which all sort of culminates in a, a piece of footage from a Maisel, Maisel's Brothers show where she does this big speech during covering Aretha Franklin's Respect. Um, talking right. about it's a thing that they did together, right? Like mm -hmm. it's a piece that was, it's like a piece of patter, but it hits different. Absolutely. Once you're sort of looking at it through Tina's eyes, mm -hmm. um, this idea of her doing respect and kind of doing a little drop down to talk about why, you know, men are out there getting what they want in the streets. Well, you know, now women want to get it too, you mm -hmm. know? Once you sort of see it with this new revelation, it's sort of the moment we chose that Tina finally kind of sees her own freedom. Right, yeah. So she, she has this confidence. She's lost the fear that she had of Ike. And it culminates in this moment when he's particularly abusive to her as they are going to their hotel in Dallas from the airport. And she finds a moment when he's passed out to run across the highway, get out of there, get to another hotel. She doesn't have any money, but she's able to convince the person at the desk to let her stay there, make mm -hmm. some calls to an attorney, and she gets out and she gets her freedom on the 4th of July. <laughs> and if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I mean, maybe the year is off, but this might also be 1976, the, the bicentennial. And then that's it. The marriage is over. They divorce. She doesn't get to keep anything. The only thing she famously holds on to 
as a, a real power move is she holds on to the name Tina Turner. I think the name thing is, again, you know, when we're talking about these crux moments in people's stories, this film in part is about Tina's relationship to her name and to her celebrity, right? So this is a, a young woman named Anna Mae who took on this title to gain celebrity, right? She took on the show name. She adopted it for herself and, you know, turned it into the person we all know and love only to then get to a place where she's, that gets intertwined as we'll get to with her, with this story that she told to Carl Arrington, to Kurt Loder. She then wants to, you know, separate herself from that once again. So it's it's something that gets touched on multiple times. So it's a, I think it's a real monumental sort of piece of her story. Yeah, absolutely. And then that takes us to part three, which is entitled Comeback. And we have Tina in a bit of a, a bit of a lost period, you know, a period that if you're a casual Tina fan, you know, you don't know much mm-hmm. from this, you know, she is doing gigs in Vegas She's shown up on the Brady Bunch Hour, which was a short-lived variety show that the Brady Bunch cast, most of the Brady Bunch cast did. You know, she's on Hollywood Squares. You know, a couple other things right in that section that we didn't get to put in that are awesome. They might be, some might be on YouTube, but I mean, she she went to Europe and and did a bunch of Italian variety shows, (gasps) like like crazy, over-the-top, disco-y, or, you know, Somewhere, maybe a little prior disco, uh, where you know the whole thing starts where it's like in like a in like a roller coaster. A roller coaster goes into the studio and around the room. Oh my god! They all sort of start dancing in you know sequin bikinis on stage and things like that. Oh um, wow! You know, but there's only so much airtime. But that stuff was really good. That's incredible. It. There's a moment when they're talking about the some of the cabaret shows she's doing. And it, there's really grainy footage of a dance studio where it seems like she's rehearsing with her dancers, but it's, it's so blurry and grainy that I can't tell if it's a recreation or if it's for real. Again, with uh, having access to uh, Rhonda, Rhonda Graham's archive, Rhonda shot eight millimeter footage during those early years with Ike, when they first were going on uh, some of the TV shows, she shot footage when Tina went to London. And when Tina first went on her own, she helped record some of those practice sessions. And this was stuff that was never, it hadn't even been developed, I think. Wow. Wow. Um, I have to check with Ben on that. But this is definitely the first time that stuff had been seen. And there was sync sound, right? I mean. What? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There was sync sound to all that stuff. Um, Another element of that is the dance instructor for her cabaret sessions when she started doing her disco medleys, who's in that, is... Hey, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blew my mind. Tony Basil. Basil? Yeah. Basil? Basil? There you go. It depends on which side of the pond you're on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's that's really, my yeah. God. Wow. Uh, just the, the fact that, that I was looking at that footage and I was like, well, that woman is moving in a way that only Tina Turner can move, but maybe it's a very skilled no, it's recreation. Real. Yeah. Yeah, it's real. At this point in the movie is when she meets her new manager, Roger, and we begin the transformation into what would become 80s Tina. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the hair is cut, the hair is fashioned in a new way. 
<laughs> I mean, a, a detail I love about this part in the movie is that her, for a time, her backup band is dressed like ninjas. <laughs> yeah. It's the 70s, baby. People are trying stuff out. So, I mean, at that period of time, Roger Davies, I think was 26 years old when he came, he came to the States and he came over and started working with uh, the manager of Olivia Newton-John and then became her manager. Uh, But he was sort of like a young go-getter. He had just been managing like a small band in Australia. And he met Tina at this period of time when I think he was 27 or 28 years old when he became her manager. Right. So they're super close friends. Now he absolutely helped her get on the path that she wanted to get on but i you know again talking about like trying to do balance in these stories this was a hard period where we were like really trying to balance and i think katori hall who wrote the play we have her talk a little bit i'm not sure if it's a film or not but really trying to balance this idea of oh this like a white guy comes in and then helps her sort of that's the only time that she sort of gets to this place i think it was just a matter of really trying to let people understand that they truly did rely on each other to sort of inform each other's decisions. And it was just mm-hmm. a matter of where each other's strengths were. And I, it was something that we all kind of wanted to make sure came across, right. That this was an, it was like a, it was a friendship more mm-hmm. than like a, than like a, um, he's not a savior. Yeah. He's not a savior. And he's not just like a businessman looking in a similar way to maybe Ike that was trying to make a exploit her. Yeah. yeah. Right. It was a collaboration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at this point, we catch up to the People magazine story. And so we get within her life, her coming out with the abuse that she suffered at the hands of Ike. And, you know, that sets off some more interest in, with the general public about her. So the comeback story is kind of happening and things are moving. And it seems like people at Capitol Records are interested and there's a development deal and they're trying to figure stuff out. And they're having a hard time, especially with a new regime that comes in at Capitol. And then this is where we get the move to the UK because the music industry in the United States just does not know what to do with her. That's right. And we we skip a couple baby steps in this in this section, you know, she had a couple singles that she did produce or she that she did record during this period of time before mm-hmm. she did Private Dancer. But basically, and this is still the case to today, I mean, Tina is incredibly famous in Europe, right? I mean, and she in part kind of considers herself European by now because she's lived there for so long. Mm-hmm. And she moved there and immediately sort of felt at home and ultimately ended up staying. At that point in time, they started working with European uh, English producers. And she first did a cover of, this is very funny because she's like, I want to be a rock star, right? And then she does, um, Let's Stay Together. That's <laughs> 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 the first single that she did. But basically, this all leads to the idea that Roger is essentially trying to use all the contacts that he has to enlist enough producers that they can get an album together, an album which will ultimately be Private Dancer. Private Dancer. Right. And I and I believe Let's Stay Together winds up on Private Dancer. That's right. I got to say, I like laughed out loud with the reveal that What's Love Got to Do With It initially was a song by like the whitest band 
of all time. Uh, Bucks Fizz, I believe they yeah. were called. Who and were that, Eurovision winners, I think, if I recall. Like, I think they were also kind I of- I believe it. Yeah, exactly. You totally believe it, right? When you hear a song that you know so well and is so ubiquitous and is so tied to a specific artist, to see it be performed by someone else and to know it came before mm-hmm. is like really will will mess you up. Yeah, I heard I I now this is the second time I'm mentioning the Clive Davis documentary, uh, <laughs> but they play the demo version of I Want to Dance with Somebody in it. And it was originally straight pop song. And you hear the demo version and you're like, that's like a hit, but it's not a classic, you know? It's like you hear the difference, what a performance can really bring to a song. Mm -hmm. There was a period of time where we were discussing titles for the film and there was a couple sort of being tossed around in the hat and one was performer. And I think the reason, you know, while it's not, you know, it doesn't speak to everything, but I think the one thing we were really trying to get at with that was, you know, Tina didn't write a lot of her own music. Her art, a lot of her artistry came through performance and through Mm -hmm. translating other people's music and I think that moment of a song like what's love got to do with it which like is kind of a cheesy song you know like even Mm -hmm. even Tina's is like you're getting into this 80s era of Tina's music where I, I don't like all of it by any means but I think what that shows is that that I mean the fact that she could transform that song through her performance to something as like awesome as it is mm-hmm. um so we we kept leaning on this thing like this is her amazing spell like her magic is her ability to do this with anything like she just she covers the motel's total control also which is like she does a really great version of it i mean she's like a great interpreter of yes. song you know, mm-hmm. there we we talk a best. lot about on the show how mm, disregarded and in a way disrespected a lot of times the skill of vocal interpretation is specifically within the rock hall. Within you know, the rock hall, it seems a lot a lot of emphasis is put on the ability to write a song, which obviously is a incredible skill and that is an art in its own right. But the dismissal of the singer who's not also a songwriter is a thread throughout the history of the rock hall, even though you have artists like Elvis Presley in the very first year. And right. so there's, right. there's a good amount of hypocrisy there. And, you know, with, uh, especially misogyny. With your, <laughs> it is often yeah. tied. It is often tied. Yeah. To misogyny and, and racism and, yeah, Elvis uh, gets a big pass always, right? Yeah, yeah, give Elvis a pass. He was uh, historically a great guy. Um, so Private Dancer comes out. What's Love Got to Do With It comes out. Smash hits. It goes to num- the song goes to number one. And, you know, and this was a song that she didn't re- even really like. Didn't even necessarily want to do. Had to be talked into doing it. And also they knock this album out in two weeks. And But it really, it catapults her back to not even back because she she says it's not a comeback this is her arriving as tina for the first Mm -hmm. time 
and she's on top of the world and she's doing the thing that she had wanted. She had set out to do, which was to do giant rock stadiums and, and she's doing it. And she's, you know, private dancer comes out and she's around 40 and she is able to keep this going for a while. You know, this isn't just like a, a year of her life where, you know, this, there's this great album. She extends this into a long second act. Yeah. I mean, she, she did the Babe Ruth point and just like it, <laughs> yeah. talking about performer again, you know, Roger mentions during this period of time during private dancer and an album that followed that on each of those tours, she did something like 285 shows. No. 250 like stadium shows Mm-mm. around Insane. the world. And I, I'm bringing that up in part for the thing that I said earlier, which is that it's said that she didn't miss a show ever. Like she, there was never a moment of, like she was always just in such good shape and delivered as if it were not only her job, but like <laughs> um, that the audience counted. That alone, just like the work ethic is, is something that I think we were all kind of blown away with the whole time we were having the opportunity to look through all of this. Yeah, and she does a show. She puts on yeah. a show. This and she is, in, is not definitely, a stool. And she's not wearing sneakers and she's not sitting on a stool. <laughs> she is high she heels wears. and she is active. And yeah. she she's she's putting it all out there. And I mean, this all culminates in her Rio show, uh, which at the time it set the record for 180 or 80, how many people was it? It's 180,000 people. That's just, I mean, that's still to this day, uh, since then it is, it's still in the, uh, the top five. Right. Absolutely insane. And then uh, speaking of absolutely insane, we get some nice footage of Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. Yes. Something we would have liked to include more of, but it actually became a rights issue to be honest. Oh. With you. We had, there was a bunch of uh, behind the scenes stuff with her on set as auntie entity um, that we wanted to sort of include. I mean, it, you know, necessity sometimes is great. I think we did something nice and clean with it, but there was a, it was definitely one of those moments we kind of want to lead in, lean into, but mm-hmm. it became a rights issue. Well, then we get to part four, which is entitled the story. And while she's on the, set of the Bad Max movie. She's uh, approached by Kurt Loder initially to do a a story for Rolling Stone, but he throws out the idea of doing a book. And this appeals to Tina because people still were asking about Ike and she was ready Mm -hmm. to lay that to rest, get the journalists off her back. So no one ever had to ask her a question about it again was the thought she would write a book that (laughs) had... This is the third time she's putting it to rest. Right, I know. (laughs) This poor woman. And of course, the the book is... And it won't be the last. (laughs) No. uh, Mm -hmm. The the book is huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a massive success. It leads to a movie based on the book. The movie is huge maybe bigger than the book. Like, so it's, it's just building and building. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's an inspiration, which, you know, maybe she wasn't necessarily expecting, but you know, this, the, the candid nature of being honest about your abuse is something, you know, it's the worst parts of her life. And we, so we get great footage of her showing up to the Venice film festival Doing the film, yeah. Doing press with Angela Bassett and, and the director, even though, as she admits, it would it appears to be the first question out of the gate. She did not see the movie, and she, she will not movie, yeah. because that is it's a difficult thing to 
have to relive. This chapter, maybe, you know, in tandem with figuring out how to open the film, was the hardest chapter to construct. And it took us the longest in terms of trying to figure out how the story sort of turns back on itself and how you sort of deal with the Tina spiral of this thing that she's sort of both leaned into and is trying to lean away from at the same time. And it's complex. And I, you know, I, I think it's more complex than we probably even show it because there's there's times where she fully embraces it. You know, she fully embraces telling her story at times. And then there's other times where she doesn't want to do that at all, right? And it's very difficult to sort of illustrate that over a period of decades, right? So yeah. the idea is it, it's complicated, right? It's 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 something that she she wants to deal with on her terms, on her terms. Uh-huh. She's happy to engage in that and she's happy to be that person sometimes yeah. She, yeah. Uh, so I think it's a matter of, of defining her and her not being able to get out of that cloud when she wants to and there was a few moments that we we weren't able to include in this section which are absolutely shocking I mean we include one piece of footage where she's caught off guard by a question and she basically gets a hot flash and they have to sort of fan her down and she has to recompose herself or compose herself. Um, but there was another one where the sort of salacious journalist, so she's kind of famous in Australia, right? So she, for various reasons, we can get to if you want, but she's on satellite feed talking to a reporter in Australia, like a, a famous news desk guy. And he surprises her with Ike in another satellite feed side by side why what oh my god and this is when she's in her 50s so this is basically at this peak time where she's it's way in the past but the movie's out of here like what the it's i mean it's sensationalism taken to a uh, extreme and upsetting degree obviously if you were going to show all the moments where people tried to gotcha her for the stories that are just on international television let alone like the rest of her life um, you could see the the difficulty of that in full so you know it was a very it was a tough piece to sort of put together yeah and we also get a pretty heartbreaking moment where her mom returns and seems to only be interested in sharing the success of tina's life and not really tina's life and Tina treats her like she's been a loving mother, even though she mm-hmm. hasn't been. And that's really, really crushing. And then we get to, we start to close out this, this part talking about how a romantic partner in the past, at this point, decade or two has eluded her. And we end on a really, really great version, live version of the Beatles' help. talk about these finding these moments and uh this was a construction that tj had sort of made using help as sort of the culmination of that and again it's just one of those things where if you took it out of context i think none of us would have been sold on the idea of like yeah and then she does you know a cover of help in this (laughs) moment but the way it adds up i mean I, i feel like the first time dan and i sat down in tj's room to sort of 
watch the first version of that scene that he cut. I feel like both of us were emotional, even, even though we knew what the footage was. That tape where she speaks about her mother, I mean, for viewers who don't know, her mother was alive throughout all of her sort of meteoric rise. And she put her up, she bought her house, she sort of kept her, gave her the life that she always thought her mother would want it. But even throughout that, it was very much one of those things where she was never appreciated her mother never really thought that it was her who made it happen. She never got that final sort of like, you did this, um, that mm-hmm. she really kind of wanted. So, uh, and like I said before, I think that's something that stuck with her and, and was deeper than anything that had happened during the Ike years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's really tragic. But we get, to, we get to come out of that and into the next part, the final part, part five, love. And we get to where, you know, we've seen at this point, current day interviews with Erwin Bach, but he is finally introduced into the story. He picks her up from the airport at one of her gigs and she thinks he's cute. And uh, they, they start a romance. It is a very funny detail that pretty early on, she just straight up says, when I come to Los Angeles, I would like to make love to you. <laughs> it's, great. It's, it's, I, it's one of the best bits I mean, yeah. hear, hearing 80-year-old Tina Turner talk about how she wants to have sex with someone is is pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, hell we, yeah. Like, she still talks about it in such a good way. Yeah. Yes, just a queen who knows what she wants and she says it and it's great. It's very sweet. And then she gets it and it's mm-hmm. fucking awesome. Yeah, she got that. Yeah. And, you know, they, he's, he's a younger man and they get married 27 years later. And then you really see the... Switzerland house they live in. And my God, that place just looks like it's out of a, a fantasy dream. Yeah, it's bonkers. There's stuff in that house that I just don't quite understand too. Like there's like a <laughs> paper mache horse or something like that over the, there's, there's some, she's, she's got some, she makes some choice. She makes some choices. They're her choices. You yeah. Know? Hell yeah. But, uh, Go for it, yeah. Tina. Yeah, um, exactly. And we, there's a, an element of closure when Ike dies and she kind of goes from hatred to understanding, you know, that he was a sick man, you know, and that he was he was not well. And that is really what was fueling his behavior. Yeah, it was sort of the, the simplest way to sort of sum up like what we were sort of talking about a little earlier. I mean, I think she means it physically, but obviously there's a level of, of experience and environment that is included in, in, in that. But yeah, I, I think I always really love that, um, the idea of being able to uh, appreciate what he was and how important he was mm-hmm. in, her, in her life and her being able to sort of acknowledge and forgive is, I think, super helpful also just in trying to understand that, you know, it's a two-hour movie, but that was a, a meant a lot to her life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think she says this thing where she's like, what would have happened if I hadn't met him? Or like, would this have happened if I hadn't met him? I don't know. Right. Right. And, you know, this this takes us to just, you know, acceptance of what her story is mm-hmm. and that that is a part of it. And she, you know, wanted to put it to rest for so long. But now she's at a place where she understands that that is part of it. And we see the musical opens about her life. And, and it's 20 at this point. We're at, we're at 2019. And, you know, this musical, and then also, you know, it, it gets a little meta because the documentary itself, this is all, this is the end note and it's, that's acknowledged, you know, there's awareness of this is her 
saying goodbye. This is this is how it all ends. It's the final bow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this this footage of her coming to the musical is really really sweet. You know that you know, everyone's so excited that she is there on Broadway. She's come from Switzerland. Who was leading her down the aisle? None other than Oprah Winfrey. Totally. <laughs> and watching that, I was like, "Is there any doubt that Oprah is going to induct Tina?" It's got to be Oprah. Well, you know That's the funny. thing. The thing about it, too, man, Oprah. She she could be all over this ceremony. <laughs> watching this movie a few months ago, knowing that. Tina was getting in it solidified the case and a thing that I have said for years on our show about the fact that she needs to be recognized solo that her life her career only half of the story is with Ike and there we we had so many kind of old timers come at us and tell us like oh she's already in with Ike and Ike is so instrumental to rock and roll and rock history and things like that and you know she's in once it's fine and I have been so furious about this like tie to her abuser and also because she's so very publicly wanted to have her own stuff it's not like and did and did and you you say ike and tina was half her career it was less than half Mm -hmm. you know most of her out her recording career was as a solo artist and without question the most successful period of her career was Mm -hmm. as a solo artist and of course the music and the impact from the Ike period is undeniable and so foundational and formative, especially because of the era that it was in. But to dismiss her solo career, which was so, so separate and still so meaningful and impactful for other reasons, you know, it was a weird and stubborn move for the hall for so long and better late than never. And she's still alive, which is yes, great. You know, I, she's not coming to Cleveland, but, yeah, but, like, <laughs> but highly unlikely, but you know, look, if they can't, if Todd Rundgren isn't going to Cleveland, <laughs> Tina Turner is not going to Cleveland. I, I think it means a lot to her actually. You know, I, I think this sort of separation and recognition I think is, I don't know that personally, but I I have the feeling that that actually is definitely a, a great conclusion to you know her career. And that's what it feels like. Like this all feels like you know the documentary, the musical. She's like, this is literally the last time you're ever going to hear me tell this damn story. All right, so like listen, and and listen true. good. I'd be surprised if you see her publicly. Like she yeah. doesn't she doesn't want to do anything ever again. You know, like if there's an awards period or anything like that. I doubt she's going to pop in or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, I guess we will see uh, when the induction ceremony rolls around in late October, I would say very, very unlikely, but, you know, especially I do think Oprah is probably going to be the one to induct her. And, you know, if anyone's going to get Tina to show up someplace, I, you know, Oprah seems to be very, very close friend. So. And she gave her another award a while back. She gave her, gosh, I forget what it was. Was it at the Kennedy center? What's the Kennedy center award? Mm, that would make sense. That would absolutely oh, like make sense. Like the honors, yeah. That yeah, would make I think, sense. I think Oprah did it for her then. Yeah. Yeah. It is very exciting that she's finally getting inducted and there will probably be at the very least some very 
cool tribute performances. And I mean, if you got Oprah and we've talked about this before, it's just now I'm getting excited again. Um, Because if you get Oprah there and we've got Jay-Z getting inducted, it's just like the Beyonce of it all is, it's (laughs) like, it's coming closer. Like I'm feeling more optimistic than I ever have Mm -hmm. that she could man perform yeah. in it's, the tribute i mean i would so queued up in i mean such... that's like on a t for it yeah Truly. she's i mean she's very open about i mean obviously they perform together at a point but she's very open about like her stage presence is not a hundred percent but like you know foundational yeah. built foundational upon, you know. those body suits like we see we know the moves the heels the goods yeah. beyonce tina <laughs> I mean, but yeah. the only the only thing that I think is just that Beyonce is is she's such a superstar right now. It's she's like protective um, she's of her like, image, and yeah. yeah, she's just too. She's almost she's like too big right. for the Rock Hall. I the Rock Hall. I don't know. But her husband is getting inducted. I know. This I know. Year. I know. I know. I know. So it's like there's the question: if if Jay Z shows up and they find and Oprah does a ring a ding, you know, I don't know, <laughs> it could happen. But, it could yeah. happen. I also, mean, the ceremony could be on fucking Zoom again this year. Who knows? <laughs> like, honestly, we, two months ago we were like, "It's happening. We're mm-hmm. we're gonna be there. Mm-hmm. It's November, right? We'll be there in November. It'll be October thirtieth, so nearly or November. October thirtieth, um, we'll have a Halloween weekend in <laughs> Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland Ohio. Ohio. I mean, we'll we'll see. A lot can happen in, in the next few months, but I am. So happy that you joined us for this episode, Carter. This was really enlightening and, and a, a great talk. So thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was great to talk to you guys. And I'd like to give you the opportunity if you would like to plug anything, whether it's your social media or any projects you got coming out, have at it. Not at the moment. I'm, I'm kind of top secret at the moment. Uh, I think later this year, though, be able to finally announce the, the thing we're, we're working on, but we're excited about it. But uh, it'll, it'll come down the pipe. Yeah. Okay. Ooh. Well, all right. Keep That's your, your uh... Google alert. Carter Gunn, <laughs> editor. Well, of course, our listeners know they can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. RockHallPod at gmail.com is the email. If you want Kristen to see your message, you need to designate that somewhere in your email. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it because she doesn't want to read it. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us. Why not? It's a nice gesture. And you have to do five stars only. If you did less than that, even if, th- if you think you're being fair and even-handed, that just doesn't help us at all. Mm-hmm. You want this, you want this pod- that podcast to grow? Do you want it to thrive? five stars only uh thank you to mike lloyd for the logo thank you to yusu kim for the music and thank you to pantheon podcasts for hosting us i'm joe quazala i'm Kristen stuttered and who cares about the rock hall with one of the best savings rates in america banking with capital one is the easiest decision in the history of decisions even easier than choosing slash to be in your band next up for lead guitar you're in cool (laughs) yep even easier than that and with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts is it even a decision that's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.